Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Sharp and hot with Chef Emily. and hot with Chef Emily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Chef Emily Peterson, joining you today from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This is episode number 61, and I have to say, Roberta's is eerily empty Mm -hmm. some weeks it is packed and there are people pressed up against this window wondering what's going on (laughs) if you are listening in real time and you've been waiting for that roberta's reservation oh come on down there call now (laughs) there's plenty of room hi ann producer ann is joining me as well hey how's it going it's going well how are you oh fine how was your thanksgiving it was great it was awesome do you uh, anything stand out on your table well so my mom hosts Thanksgiving every year back mm-hmm. in Queens. Um, so it's great. So it's like just a ton of family. And then like all my, my buddies come from childhood and everybody comes after for dessert. So it's always my favorite. Oh, how yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. That sounds really cool. so normal and well-adjusted. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. It's always an adventure. Always fun. Um, so the day after Thanksgiving is known as Black Friday and there's a lot of shopping that happens. And then yesterday is known as Cyber Monday where everyone goes back to work and does their online holiday shopping at their office on their boss's dime. Today, the Tuesday following Thanksgiving is known as Giving Tuesday. You may see that hashtag Giving Tuesday is trending on Twitter right now. And uh, right before we went on air, I renewed my membership of Heritage Radio Network, and it makes me feel good to be part of our tribe. I asked um, the deputy director, Allison Hamlin, if it was okay that I call us a merry band of weirdos. And she said yes. I wanted to make sure that was on brand. (laughs) (laughs) So if you are... um, Looking for a place to put some of your hard-earned dollars into a not-for-profit that genuinely appreciates your help and your um, participation, head on over to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate. I just tweeted out the link, too. So you can go to twitter.com forward slash Chef Emily P and join our tribe and get a cool tote bag because we're public radio. Yeah. (laughs) So my first guest for today's show is Pastry... Chef Nick Malgieri, am I limiting you, Chef Nick, by saying pastry chef? Not really, no. No, it's fine. The title of your new book, which is beautiful, Thank is you. Pastry. Yes. And the subtitle is Foolproof Recipes for the Home Cook. And I want to talk to you about how you get to recipes that are foolproof because... <laughs> I, By uh, making a lot of mistakes, basically. Yes, I love that <laughs> philosophy. Okay, That's good. definitely the path to foolproofness. So how many books have you written at this point? Uh, this is my 12th book. Okay, so are there recipes that are in this book that have not made the cut into other books because of their challenge level, where you've foolproofed them for this one? Mm, interesting. Uh, no, I don't think so. What I set out to do with this book was to... Uh, give some of the old favorites, so some of the tried and true, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second, but I did develop a lot of n- brand new material for this, and uh, I'd been using, for example, just one example, I'd been using a dough made with olive oil for savory pastries 
for quite a while, and I was very happy with the result because it's you need all of the elaborate equipment of a bowl and a fork to make the dough. <laughs> okay. And the other thing that's that's really um, alluring about it, especially for beginners, is the dough's kind of elastic. So you, if you press too hard when you roll it, that's exactly what you should be doing. Okay. Whereas with doughs made with solid fat like butter, sometimes that can turn into a nightmare if the butter is getting too soft. Mm-hmm. And um, at the suggestion of a friend... I also developed a sweet dough that's made with oil. It's not made with olive oil. I I like to use an organic um, cold-pressed safflower oil because it's really neutral tasting, and it doesn't develop any kind of off taste when it's heated from baking. Mm -hmm. So that worked out really nicely. Uh, My friend Michelle Tempakis, who has a wonderful uh, gluten-free bakery in Brooklyn called Whipped Pastry Boutique, plug for Michelle. <laughs> uh, but anyway, she and I have been friends and work colleagues for over 30 years. And she shared two of her gluten-free pastry dough recipes with me. And uh, I have to say, the people I know who've tried them, I mean, I, I certainly tried them myself, but other people who've made them have said that they're really by far superior to other kinds of gluten-free doughs out there, both in the working and in the tasting. So that was something new, and I also investigated a great deal of uh, new material that uh, was new to me by going to Turkey and finding out about the thin Turkish doughs. Yufka, which is the one that's used for savory pastries, that is, has nothing, is nothing like Greek phyllo dough, and also the baklava yufka, which has eggs in it, which is very rich and very thin and is not stretched like strudel dough, but it's actually rolled in a stack of eight sheets of dough by hand. And you have beautiful photographs of that. I was noticing Thank you. I, I was thrilled with our team because Romulo Yanez, who for many years was the photographic eye of Gourmet Magazine, uh, did the photography, and the food styling was done by my old friend Paul Grimes, ah. also a an alumnus of many, many, many gourmet covers and an old colleague from the old Peter Kumps on 92nd Street. So uh, my listeners know that I am a graduate. I'm an alum of the newly branded Institute of Culinary Education, which was formerly Peter Kumps, and we were joking off air that I've made good on my education (laughs) there, and I loved it. So when you are developing... Foolproof recipes for the home cook. Yes. Do people see a recipe for baklava dough and think, there's no way I could ever do that? There's no way that that's accessible. When, when you think of baklava as this, you know, multi-layered, um, you know, almost like, uh, it's, I mean, it's not a laminated dough, right? The, I guess No, the, no, it's, it's, it's individual paper, more, less than paper thin layers stacked up together. Um, you know, opening the book and going straight to the baklava dough is like opening a cake book and going straight to the eight-tiered wedding cake with the, you know, multicolored chocolate roses all over it. Okay. It, you know, it's something that um, if, you're experien- if you're an experienced baker, it might be easy to attempt on the first try. Uh, but if you're not then the best thing to do is to kind of work your way up to it. I'm glad to hear you say yeah. that because I, um, as, a, uh, you know, as a teacher myself, I, I'll give you a for instance. This past semester, I had students laminate 
croissant dough, um, but we used it to make cinnamon rolls instead and sort of sped up the process. And they were not particularly delicious, but they overcame this fear that they all came, you know, that they had that it wasn't going to be good and it was going to be so challenging. And what they saw was that with a little bit of just like patience and focus and forgiveness of themselves, it is totally achievable. Yeah, pastry making is all about patience and focus. And it used to be a very common and integral part of home cooking until World War II came by. And women were, many, many, many American women worked outside the home for the first time, didn't have time to have baking day once a week, like laundry day once a week. And, you know, and then, of course, <laughs> women's lib totally destroyed <laughs> the idea of, you know, the mother of the family being the loaf giver. So uh, I think by the time a generation passed of people who'd never experienced home baking, what happened was that people started thinking, oh, well, this is some kind of arcane alchemy that, you know, I can't possibly, a mortal like myself could never make a lemon meringue pie, which, you know, 75 years ago, nobody would have thought that that was a big deal to do. So speaking of pie, you have brought us a pie. I did. I brought you the molasses pecan pie that's in the book. And, you know, I just love, Anne, that you're clattering the... <laughs> that you're clattering the... You know what? I was at a radio show once, and the subject was cake. And there was a producer who was literally having a silent nervous breakdown in the studio, <laughs> right in the, you know, where we were, where we were talking, because she was afraid that a fork or a plate might make a tiny noise. Yeah, we do the real deal here. Yeah, yeah we are. This is know. all authentic. I know. Hey, you passed me one. Yeah, there you go. And see, I'm not going to be able to make a, a noise with a fork, though, because uh, you didn't give me that. Well, there we go. <laughs> so wait, is this your safflower? Is this your safflower No, this crust? is okay. actually... Actually, I'm glad you asked me. This is the sweet pastry dough, and it's it's a recipe that I've been using for 30 years. I'm thrilled with it. I over I, anyone who knows me knows I overuse this dough. I love it for something like <laughs> so this, excited. like a pecan pie or pumpkin pie. Speaking of Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. or I have a really nice cranberry pie in the book that's great for Christmas because of all that red. Mm-hmm. But what mm-hmm. I love wow. about it is. The dough is, first of all, it has sugar in it, so the sugar tenderizes the dough. Okay. Secondly, it does not have an enormous amount of butter in it. It's 50% the amount of butter that might be in a butter-based pastry dough. And the third thing is that it's got a bit of baking powder in it, which I think is kind of the magic cure-all for all pastry doughs because Hmm. with this puffing nicely... From the, from the action of the baking powder, it always maintains a good contact with the bottom of the pan, which is the source of heat, and you eliminate what I call tart tartare, which is the <laughs> oh. raw bottom crust underneath the filling, sure. and that's a very, very important thing, especially important with... You know, how many times have you seen pumpkin pie, pecan pie, or, or summer? Fr- I love to use this for a blueberry pie or a peach pie, too. Mm. Works really, really well. Sometimes at this time of the year, probably more in the fall, though, uh, I, I make a sour cream apple pie with mm. some quickly cooked apples and a sour cream custard and a crumb topping. And this dough is perfect with it. 
So you don't blind bake this crust? This is... Definitely not. Blind okay. baking is one of the greatest wastes of time in baking. Wow. That's like... You have a stance. I do. All right. So... Not, you know what? People often say to me, Nick, you're too wishy-washy. I have an, op- <laughs> I have an opinion about everything. About <laughs> so not even for quiche? No. In fact, that olive oil dough that I was talking about mm-hmm. is impeccable. It's very hard to talk and chew pecans at the same time. I have a question. So for those of us that maybe aren't bakers all the time, what is the difference between blind baking? And okay, like blind baking mean? means, and you, and you know, it's necessary to do it sometimes. Blind baking means you roll out a crust, mm-hmm. whether it's a pie crust or a tart crust. You chill it, you let it rest, and then you line the dough with a piece of flexible parchment paper. Okay. Never use aluminum foil because it'll fold and cut through the dough and then weight the paper down with dried beans, rice, something. One summer I saved all my cherry pits. <laughs> I don't use that. You know why? Cherry pits are great. Rice is great too for that reason because it's hard and it doesn't absorb the fat and turn rancid and smelly. Huh. And then when you bake your crust like that, the weight helps to keep it from puffing up uncontrollably. Also helps to keep the sides uh, against the side of the pan. Helps to prevent them from shrinking and disappearing. But the best thing that happens then is after you remove the paper and the beans, you put the crust back in and you let it finish baking. So if you were making a a typical French-style fruit tart, for example, where you've got a baked cookie dough or... Uh, flaky dough crust, a little bit of pastry cream in the bottom, and then fruit that's normally consumed raw, arranged on that, whether or not you put a glaze on it. So that crust is said to have been baked blind. Right. Now, what some people do is they partially bake blind. Right. My beef with that is <laughs> if you don't bake it enough when you pre-bake, partially pre-bake, it's never going to finish baking. If you bake it too much when you partially pre-bake, it's going to get too baked when you put the filling in and do it. That's why I like to use a thin, thin raw dough with baking powder in it, also cohered with eggs, not water. Mm -hmm. makes a big difference in the final texture of the dough and also the ease of handling. And, um, yeah, I never have problems. The other thing, too, is essential to bake your pie or tart in the bottom rack of the oven. Oh, so I was going to ask you if cooking it on a pizza stone would help cook the bottom more evenly. It, it could if you have a stone that you like and that you know is very reliable, but you don't have to go to that extent as long as you use the bottom of the oven because that's where your bottom heat is coming from. Mm-hmm. And you don't mean directly on the bottom of the oven, you mean the bottom rack. On the lowest right? rack, right. correct, okay. yeah. Do you have time for one other question? That sure, comes- definitely. This is directly from my husband. Um, I feel like I should have him on the air. I, I talk about him all the time. So my grandmother, uh, Doris, passed away. And before she died, I asked her for her refrigerator roll recipe. And the recipe that she gave me doesn't work. <laughs> and I think Uh-oh. she was, she was <clears throat> a little too old by the time I realized that I wanted that recipe before it was too late. So I've tried to resurrect that recipe. It hasn't worked. 
my aunt, my Aunt Terry, said, try getting an old copy of The Joy of Cooking because that's probably what she was baking out of. My husband found one from the, I think, like the 50s or something. Could be, yeah. And they're almost perfect. Oh, good. They're almost perfect. So my question is, do you have a preferred refrigerator roll recipe? And then my husband's question is, how long does that... Will that dough last in the in the in the oven in the refrigerator before it, it what it's doing? Okay, so you're saying that this is a dough you make and you leave in the refrigerator and then you break off pieces and make the <laughs> rolls and bake them whenever you want them. Yep, uh, a totally alien concept to me. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Although I do, I do remember years ago was in the early mid. It was in the mid eighties. There was a, you know, 30-day muffin recipe oh. where you mixed up this stuff and you kept adding to it. And I kind of just sounded s- sort of vaguely unsanitary <laughs> to me. <laughs> no, okay, she would so do with it your in refrigerated advance. rolls, right. um, normally, if you want to get the best flavor, you should be baking a yeast dough within a maximum of 36 hours after you mix that's it. Sort of, I figured three days was probably... No, no, no. That's day and a half. I'm talking a day and a oh, half. Oh, a day and a half. Right, because, yeah. because what's, what's basic arithmetic, really? If you, <laughs> hey, right, right. A day and a half. Okay, so he I did it I would say if you, make them, if you make them late in the day, mm-hmm. you can bake them on the following day. You could also bake them on the following day after that. All right. But I don't think I would prolong it. If you bake them early in the day, your time limit is probably going to be then... Well, then that's 48 hours then. If you make them early in the day, then early, not the following, but the following day. Right. Okay. Nick Malgieri, thank you so much for coming to Heritage Radio. You're welcome. Radio. Thank you very much. The My pleasure. Is, the book is called Pastry. It is perfect in time for holiday gift giving and also holiday baking. If you have the uh, opportunity to go to any sort of potluck, tell me. Go ahead. A plug. Yes, please. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm making Love my Bay Ridge debut. On Friday evening at ALC, Louis Coluccio's wonderful Italian grocery store on 3rd Avenue uh, near 86th Street in Bay Ridge. He's my neighbor. I I moved to Bay Ridge uh, toward the end of September. And um, he and the Bookmark Bookstore, which is also on 3rd Avenue. I hope I said that right. are sponsoring this book signing, and I'm going to do a demo. I'm making strudel. So if you've never seen anybody take a little piece of dough and pull it so that it becomes transparent, you'll have an opportunity to do it then. (laughs) Friday night. We will put that information on sharpenhot.com. That sounds like so much fun. Nick Malgieri, thank you again for coming on the show and for bringing pie. Yes, thank you. Thank you. National Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting edge education to future chefs, 
restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. It is so exciting to have this new medium. Hosting after the jump has been a huge part of me transitioning from being a blogger to somebody who has sort of real important conversations with people in real life. My show, I, I kind of describe it as an audio trade magazine. I learn a ton from the guests every week, whether it's, it's restaurants, bars. All the hosts at Heritage all come from different perspectives. Everyone should be listening to this. If you're interested in conservation and and practical approach to renewable food sources, you know, not this big industry. Whether it's history, uh, laws, social policies of food, I think people now take food seriously, and hopefully what's on their plate will become something very special. And I feel that podcasting has a future, giving people information in a format they can really use on the go. We need your support to keep these conversations going. To donate, visit heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. Welcome back to Sharp and Hot, everyone. I am your host, Chef Emily Peterson, coming to you live from a filling up Roberta's Pizza. I think people got the memo that there were available seats. And joining me, <laughs> <laughs> joining me now for the second yes, half I. of the show in the studio are the star of the new film, Delusions of Guinevere, Ariana Bernstein, and the director... Joanna Bowser, welcome. Thanks for Thanks having for us. Having us. Yeah. So give me, uh, give me and the listeners a little background on Delusions of Guinevere, and then I want to talk about you as people. But the film is so charming and sweet, and I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, so the, the idea came about um, uh, me kind of being in the middle between the millennial generation and, and the generation before and kind of seeing both sides of it and being stuck in the middle. And um, I started thinking about, you know, the older generation's relationship with the younger generations and the thought that, you know, every millennial feels entitlement and needs instant gratification, and whether that comes in the form of technology or whatever it is, that seems to be the consensus. Um, and I started thinking about um, Delusions of Grandeur, and, and that's basically the way the title came about, Delusions of Guinevere, is a clear play on that term. Um, and And through that title, just kind of the whole theme of everything evolved from that. Very cool. And it's filmed, Joanne, it's filmed in Brooklyn? Yeah, we filmed in Brooklyn and in uh, the West Village and around Manhattan as well, but most of the the especially the Guinevere centric moments take place in Brooklyn. So it was a lot of fun to come out here yeah, and really like so get cool. to know the landscape and <clears throat> and get to know the neighborhood because it was my first experience filming in Brooklyn. And just through location scouting, really got to know the Williamsburg area and out into Bushwick and things like that. So it was it was a real treat. Did you shoot around here? I was I was looking, but I don't I don't remember. We didn't do any exteriors around here, but okay. we shot at Brooklyn Fireproof, which is a really great set of sound stages that are out here. Okay, and where was the coffee shop? The coffee shop was um, Second Stop, which is now closed, and it's I think now it's the Blind Barber. Okay. Um, and that's in Williamsburg. It's on Ainsley Street. Mm. Um, that was a coffee shop that I frequented for a long time before we filmed there and thought it was so beautiful and, and 
perfect for this film and I just had my heart set on it. I was so happy when we got that location. And it was fantastic because we didn't really have to do much to it because it already had that charm. Right, right. It was built in. It was just, you know, seeping out of the walls. Um, so so cool. it was really easy to, to go in there and take it over and the, the, the residents, it's really funny because I guess they just wouldn't notice that there was a film crew. <laughs> so they would walk in to get their morning coffee, and we'd actually shut the place down for three days. We'd bought them out. Uh -huh, so they would uh -huh. walk in to get coffee, and they're like, oh, sorry. <laughs> had, like, they would kind of like slowly back up. And, <laughs> and yet on the other hand, I think a side effect of living in Brooklyn is that you get kind of used to people making movies about the, you know, about right, the place. Right, right. It was, it was funny. So the, sh the movie, the story opens with Guinevere, who is now 29, and she has found fame at a very young age as a child star of a gelé commercial. Yes. And now it's coming up on the 20th anniversary, and they're putting together a reunion. Um, you said the, uh, you know, how the millennials see the older generations and the sense of entitlement. And what's interesting about her is that she's also seeing people in her own generation, like the... Um, the Natalie Portman character who has gone on to become famous and have this huge career. And she's like, well, why not me? And ha so, I mean, I, I just, I, I felt so much kinship with this character <laughs> yeah. because you, people might look often look at me like I'm crazy when I say, well, I, I, you know, I work in radio and I really want to, I want my own television show. Like people look at you like you're nuts. Right. Yeah. <laughs> to so, be ambitious. Right. So tell me about like developing this character who's not only, you know, comparing herself to her established lawyer sister, who's obviously older and has a kid and like very, you know, put together. together. And then, you know, herself where she's not so much. I mean, there's, I, and I don't want to like talk too much about the plot, but the scene where she does the gelée shots I mean, it's just so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, that scene was actually heavily inspired by, um, um, oh God, now I'm blanking on her name. The woman who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, who I... Yes. Uh, who I, oh, Elizabeth Gilbert. Elizabeth right? Gilbert, yes. And I love her. Um, and that scene, that I watched her TED Talk, and she was talking about, you know, your best days being behind you, and what if your greatest work is already in the past? And I thought about... My goodness, what about these child stars who have already peaked at the age of nine, ten years old, and then, you know, they just go downhill from there? That was the whole psychology behind Guinevere. And in that scene, that particular scene you're talking about, it comes out in a crazy, drunken stupor in front of... <laughs> well, I, re I remember, like, reading, because you wrote that monologue. Right. Um, there was a, a group of four writers, and I distinctly remember certain pieces coming from certain writers. And I know that you wrote that monologue, and it was a... It wasn't written as a drunken rant at first. It was just a very like straightforward, like compelling piece of. I think it was just a free write that you had done. Right. I actually kind of, remember did it. I did it on a boat. I yeah. Remember. Like we were trying to. She was just trying to discover. We were just trying to figure out who the character was, and she had just kind of written this thing. And and I remember reading it in the in the writers' room and saying, "This would be really funny if she was just wasted. Like we could actually really like bring this monologue out and and it's." Because that's what people do when they get really drunk. They get really honest. Right, right. <laughs> and and she just, yeah, and so we just, we just, we decided to have, to keep exactly what was written instead of having it be this kind of like heartfelt expression from the character. We just added the jello shots <laughs> to it just to add this layer of humor that really had it sparkle. And then obviously Ariana's performance of it just nailed it. And it was really funny on set how we 
got Ariana to the point of like really looking <laughs> that drunk. Yeah, there was, was a lot of spinning she around. She spin around yeah, and then she started delivering the lines kind of off kilter. It was very And very all funny. of the extras just thought I was psychotic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I actually have heard that pl- like playing drunk is one of the hardest things to do because you don't you don't I, you know you never like witness yourself drunk right like, hopefully well <laughs> there's not too many recordings of it <laughs> i did do a fair amount of research <laughs> where um i definitely would drink and pay attention to how it affected me mm-hmm. um but then you know when you're in the moment you have to lose that but just so you have it kind of like in in your essence in your core that you can remember it um on a visceral level um but also i think that scene is so poignant because the thing that's getting her um, to the point of you know that whole drunken speech is the shot version of the gelée, right. you know. So it's just kind of ridiculous, ironic, and sad and beautiful all at the same time. I really, really loved the. Uh, I just lo- I loved it. It was very charming. So how can people go and see it? It's yeah. If you want to tell us so, your times, I saw yeah. you are on Twitter, so we people can follow you we on Twitter. We are on Twitter. It's at Delusions of Gwen uh, G U I N. And we will be playing at Cinema Village starting this Friday, December 5th, um, going through Thursday, December 11th. And our show times, I believe, are 110, 310, 710, and 920 every day. Um, 710 on this Friday, there will be a Q&A with the cast and crew. So if you want to come to that, get your tickets now because they're going to go fast. Um, and then we're going to be on iTunes and Amazon and... Um, I think Emgo and who and a bunch of other digital platforms in time for the holidays. So awesome! It's a so good present. How does, <laughs> as filmmakers, and I, you know, I hear in you talking that there's a lot of collaboration in the writing and the making of the movie. How is the changing nature of how how people get to see movies? How does that affect how you approach a project? Hmm. Well, it's been really interesting um, because we, when we started the project, we've kind of experienced over the past two years the really shifting landscape. So there was a lot of conversations between Ariana and myself thinking, okay, like we would, we would have a distribution plan in place and then the landscape would shift and then we'd have it in place again. And then the landscape would shift. So we, it was a a lot of um, back and forth about what is the strategy? How do we bring this to market given what's going on in the film world as far as distribution goes? And so that's been one of the, the exciting things and the challenges, frankly, of, of bringing the film to market is kind of like, playing with that the model because the model has been changing and so now one of the things that when I look at a project as a producer or as a director I if I don't see the market for the film immediately even if the creative really sings to me I probably won't tackle that project because if I can't see okay we need to take this at let's say two hundred thousand dollars so we can recoup blah 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 this way for me I love making movies but I also want to make movies that people see and right. that get out there. And so that really factors into my decision-making as a filmmaker. And I've walked away from projects that I'm saying, I, I don't see the marketing here. Hmm. And if you can't, like, if we can't figure that out, there's just no reason to go raise the money. So let me ask you a practical question. And I, I sort of struggle with this in my own, you know, my own platform of radio and print media. Can you buy it? Can you buy exposure? Like, is it a matter of like, if you had unlimited resources for PR, could you purchase your way into being a household name? Or I, is it not? Is that 
not really the case. I'm going to take that. I think that there that that's a very like loaded question, and I think it can go both ways. I think that obviously money can buy things, and we see that all the time. <laughs> cadence. It is cadence. <laughs> I don't know what you can say on this radio station. Anything you want. What a bitch. <laughs> um, no, but I, I think that the, the thing that I've noticed with PR reps is that they need to feel a connection with the project and they need to be able to feel that, you know, that as Joanna was saying too, like that there's going to be a place maybe in, the, maybe not the marketplace, but in the, in the press space for the film, for the people that they're representing. So, just because you have, I don't know, millions, billions, whatever it is, you know, amount of capital, if it doesn't sing to the publicist, to the to the press, then it doesn't matter how much money you have. It still has to be a connection. Yeah. You guys totally sung to me with Delusions of yeah. Gwen. <laughs> Thank you. On Twitter, Delusions of Gwen, right? Mm-hmm. right? And how do people follow you as an individual, if you want that? Or if you're like, actually, I want to keep my private life private. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I don't have that many followers yet. It's um, at Ariana Bernstein, just my name, A-R-I-A-N-A-B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N. And I'm at Joanna Bowser. With a Z. That's so simple. Oh, right. <laughs> so easy. My Instagram's a little harder. <laughs> Do you want to share it? It's yeah. Brooklyn Film Girl. So. Oh, that's yeah, but that's that's charming. It's, it's pretty yeah. uh, spot on for me. Are you both working on upcoming projects? Yeah, I have um, I have three projects that will hopefully be going in the next eighteen months at different um, budget levels. So I'm just right now it's putting the packages together, writing the scripts and making sure that they go and really like putting the business together. I loved I love sitting here and talking to you guys because it's rare that some that I get to talk to someone who makes movies. Like yeah. how cool is your job? Well, we didn't bring pie. No. <laughs> You're definitely getting a pie. No, you should have brought we should have brought Cheerios or Wiglios <laughs> or shot glasses. Yeah, yeah exactly. We have, jello, we'll we'll send shots. you some shot glasses. Some jelly shots. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you both so much for coming to the studio. Again, everybody, it is Giving Tuesday. Go to heritageradionetwork.com forward slash donate. Become a member of our fine little radio station here. And until next week, everyone, keep playing with fire and knives. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.